everyone. Welcome to a new episode of the Skeptically Inclined Science Podcast. Today we are joined by Dr. Anthony Cave. He's an engineer, medical doctor, social media influencer, and proponent of discovering and activating urinate health. Anthony swapped Silicon Valley for medical scrubs, and he's a Stanford, Harvard-trained, board-certified anesthesiologist. On top of that, he's also an integrative medicine specialist. His social media presence gained him over 370k followers on TikTok and sizable following across his other channels. Welcome, Anthony. Do you have any disclosures that you want to make before we start? Thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to our episode. No disclosures to make other than uh, I am the founder of Medical Secrets, uh, the social media channel that I help spread all this education on and to help combat misinformation. So firstly, would you like to tell us who you are and your journey from Silicon Valley to anesthesiology? Great. Well, once again, thank you for the introduction. You already hit some of the high points there. But as an engineer, I wanted, like all engineers, to solve uh, a lot of the world's biggest problems. And I realized pretty quickly that healthcare is certainly the biggest problem to solve along with energy in the United States and likely the world. Uh, I decided to go on the medicine route and not the energy route and applied to medical school afterwards and quickly took some time off at Stanford to do some uh, entrepreneurial things with a startup. As you can imagine, the Silicon Valley bug there infects a lot of yeah. students there. Um, I did eventually pick anesthesiology as a, uh, a residency after medical school because of the interaction between the human body and all the devices used to monitor patients in the operating room. You know, when you're asleep under anesthesia, you can't talk to us. You can't tell us how you feel. We need to have monitors that can help keep you safe during that very vulnerable period of surgery. So it seemed like a natural fit for an engineer. And towards the end of residency, I realized that uh, we already have incredible tools for taking care of patients in the most uh, acute phase of their care, meaning the most dangerous uh, phase of the care. Things in the emergency room, things in the operating room, where seconds and minutes matter. However, the burden of medical disease and medical costs doesn't really come from what happens in those seconds and minutes. They're obviously very important and very expensive because one minute in the operating room is more expensive than anything else yeah. in medicine. Yeah. But, but the majority of the burden, which ultimately leads to the costs of medicine, come from our day-to-day lives and day-to-day decisions, et cetera, things on the public health or the policy side. So I tried to figure out what, how, how can we use everything that we know about the human body in the most, you know, in the most sick patients and the most vulnerable time in the operating room and be able to apply this to help patients hopefully prevent the need for surgery yeah. and prevent the need for expensive life-saving treatment at a stage when it's no longer going to be as helpful because <clears throat> obviously if you can prevent the heart attack, it's better than having the heart attack, right? Yeah. So uh, that led me to uh, that fellowship in integrative medicine, which is looking at the data and the evidence behind medicinal practices from across the world, East Asia, South Asia, the Americas, et cetera, and literally integrating that with what we already do well in Western conventional medicine. So think of things like acupuncture, herbal medication, uh, medicines, et cetera, et cetera. Can we combine these in a cost-effective manner with evidence behind them? to help bring the best of all medical knowledge to our patients and not just focus on expensive, high-tech healthcare delivery. And sure enough, you can. Yeah. And that's why now I'm on social media to help share the message that ultimately 
humans have more power over their health than they've likely ever been told. And the sooner we appreciate how much innate healing we have a capacity for, the sooner we can help embrace that and help prevent the need for more invasive, expensive medical interventions. Yeah, Anthony, this is actually something that um, I have realized uh, just, you know, by watching your videos and uh, reading your blog on your website and just trying to get to know you as a as a medical provider. And like, I think what you did is like you made me realize that there is a there is a definitely a, a, a need for like this conventional medicine that could be used in these acute situations when, you know, their life lives are on the at risk. But there is also this other side, this kind of preventable things that we can do before the patients find themselves in the position where they do need acute medical help, right? So, so that, that helped me like kind of understood what is this integrative medicine uh, really about? Because here in, in, in Europe, or maybe just in the Netherlands, I, I haven't come across this terminology. Uh, so I was like, okay, what is exactly the uh, integrative medicine? So we, uh, I will, I will circle back uh, to integrative medicine because for me this is interesting. Uh, but I would like to start maybe with some questions about your field of anesthesiology, if um, if that's okay. And we all, uh, I think we all aware how much or under how much pressure the doctors are. Uh, and that's due to like, no, the COVID situation, uh, the media did great cover on the healthcare workers and how much time and pressure they have to commit to doing their job. But I wonder just, just for yourself as an anesthesiologist, how many operations are you involved per week? And you know, how, how busy you are as a, as a, as a doctor there in the hospital? Yeah, well, anesthesia is interesting. It's the most mysterious branch of medicine, the one which we, uh, along with obstetrics, know the very least about in medicine. So prefacing with that, um, anesthesiologists, we do all sorts of different surgeries, everything from infants to elderly people, C-sections for pregnant women, open heart surgeries, you know, though anything that you might theoretically need surgery for, or even a procedure with sedation for, somebody needs to monitor you to make sure that you are that your heart and lungs and your brain are all carefully balanced with the anesthesia so that you don't get overdosed, you're not underdosed and in pain and uncomfortable. So this is what we go to school for for so many years. Um, I personally do a lot of what's called outpatient surgery now, where patients typically are coming in for shorter procedures for things that um, like uh, orthopedic sports related surgeries, some general surgeries like um, you can imagine gallbladders, colon removals for cancer, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I uh, don't do very much obstetrics anymore. So the things like the epidurals for pregnant women or the okay. uh, spinal cesarean section. So <clears throat> I only mention this because I might do anywhere from four to eight cases per day because these tend to be shorter cases. Yeah. When I used to do the open heart surgery cases, those might be like seven hour cases, the six hour cases, there were open brain, you know, brain surgeries. Those can be much longer. So the different demands for anesthesiologists and it depends on what the surgery is, how sick the patient is. Um, those are the variables that go into how <clears throat> many cases you're doing in terms of how hard anyone works. Um, as you know, when you're under anesthesia, your brain is literally turned off, but your heart also turns off. Anywhere in your body where you have nerves, anesthesia has some level of influence. So luckily, the brain is more susceptible to anesthesia than the heart. But if you crank up the volume enough for the anesthesia dosing, you will turn the heart off as well. So that's why 
Anesthesia is a very delicate limbo of patients being in a medical coma, along with them uh, still being able to wake up at mm -hmm. the end of it. Yeah, because uh, you, you, you mentioned uh, the different inst instruments that are involved and, you know, the tubes that I have no idea how they are called properly. But there's a lot of machines involved from what everybody can tell from like different TV shows. But <laughs> like, I think my question is like, what is, th there is a difference between anesthesia and falling asleep. It's not, it, it, it's not exactly the same thing, is it? Very, very different. When we put electroencephalograms on patients, we look at the brain waves. The medical coma of anesthesia is more like a coma than it is like mm -hmm. sleep. But, you know, if I'm explaining the process to a patient, it's much easier to describe it as when you fall asleep right. rather than when we induce a <laughs> medical coma in you, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. But um, I wonder, as a patient, how should I prepare myself for anesthesia and, you know, the subsequent surgery that will follow? And you, yourself, as an anesthesiologist, what sort of information are you looking for in a patient prior to, prior to the procedure? Well, how we prepare for anesthesia is something that this is what I'm on social media because nobody ever talks about it. We talk about preparing to give speeches, preparing for athletic events, preparing for us having this conversation today. But how often do people think about preparing for Certainly. one of the most invasive traumas of their life, both psychologically and physically? There's a lot of lost opportunity to engage patients in their care before surgery, which unfortunately can have very large consequences. Because like we said, the operating room is not only the most expensive part of medicine, but also the one with the greatest risks of bad things happening because we're dealing with such second to second, minute to minute changes in the body from the anesthesia that we give from the surgery that's literally cutting them open. So we need to do a much better job. It's something that I've been advocating for years um, and on social media. That's why I go on there because the more prepared patients are, the better in particular, their mindset can be. And ultimately, if we can do things to lower anesthesia requirements, prime patients for good outcomes. We can reduce the risk of surgical complications, things like infections, blood clots, and also help reduce the risk of psychological trauma, things like worsening depression or anxiety or PTSD from the very scary operating room environment. Remember, when patients go in an operating room, we literally wipe their memories with the medications that we give. They have no idea what's going on to their body. And sometimes it happens before they even come into the operating room making it a very mysterious place in the world. Where else do you literally have your memories taken away from you? you know, there's a lot of sense of loss of control. And when patients feel like they've lost control, that's a setup for anxiety and trauma. So there's a lot of balance in anesthesia of the devices, the breathing tubes, the ventilator, these medications that have very, very second-to-second uh, -second actions, but we're also balancing this with the human being in front of us. And if we just treat this like a factory, bringing patients in and out, you'll lose a very powerful opportunity to help make a positive impact on your patient's life. And then you can extrapolate this to the rest of medicine as well. Surgery and the emergency room just being the two most powerful examples, this can still be extrapolated everywhere else. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, I think it's a really great job that you're doing because I think just to have this uh, awareness for people is, is super important make sure they are ready for surgeries um but like so i understand during surgery i seen this from your blog that 
uh, awareness and wakefulness. These are some terms that can occur in some patients. Could you explain the mechanisms at action here? Yeah, well, no one can explain the mechanisms yeah. very well. People simply don't know them. If we're talking about the mechanism of consciousness, this is the holy grail of you know all of our endeavors and understanding uh, who we are. That being said, we do understand ways of manipulating it. So like as an engineer, you know, we know how to manipulate the current in a wire, but do I really know what an electron is? I mean, like kind of, sort of, I don't know what, but not really, I know how to manipulate it. So as anesthesiologists, we are manipulating consciousness, manipulating memory formation, manipulating the body's homeostatic mechanisms to survive like we are right now, manipulating them for it to tolerate surgery without adverse consequences. Because yeah. if we try to do surgery on an, on an awake patient, we might kill the patient for yeah. many, many reasons, not to mention it being really painful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so what are we doing with awareness? The engineering approach is that there is a certain dose needed to scramble memories, literally acting on GABA receptors and NDA receptors, um, and probably a whole bunch of other ones that we don't yet know. We need to agonize and agonize at a certain concentration of drug at the effect site, usually in the central nervous system, the brain, the spinal cord, mostly the brain when we're talking about consciousness, but pain when we're talking about the spinal cord as well. Um, sorry, but the spinal cord when we're talking about pain. Uh, you need a certain dose requirement. If you don't get enough there at the brain, if you have a delta or a gap between the requirement and the dose that's delivered, well, then now you're at risk of having some memories may be being formed and consolidated during surgery. This is what we call anesthesia awareness. Yeah. Many things can go into increasing dose requirements and decreasing delivered doses. Depends really on what a patient brings to the operating room table. And that's one of the huge areas where you can prepare theoretically um, and very pragmatically with the right knowledge before to help minimize that delta so that you don't have anesthesia awareness. And why do we care about awareness? It's not because, I mean, obviously it's unpleasant and it certainly sucks, but the brain is not very good at piecing things together when it's had a little bit of awareness. If you have full on mm. awareness, like the stories you hear from people who are like, oh my gosh, I remember all the conversations. I felt everything happening. Those are fortunately quite rare. What's more common is to have fragments of memories that are scrambled, that leave the patient unsettled for weeks or months after surgery, because parts of it, presumably the frontal cortex, hippocampus, et cetera, were not fully functioning, those memories were not consolidated in a way that allows for a clear recall of the experience. This leaves patients with things like feeling hyperarousal, maybe loneliness and isolation, worse depression, anxiety, ultimately PTSD. Mm. They may not even know what's going on. They just feel all these for lack of a better word, these emotions and these uh, these terrible mental health consequences, but they can't even pin down what caused it because the memories weren't formed in a way that they can, you know, uh, recall the triggering event. So for many reasons, this is the problem. And because of that, your denominator is undercounted, right? So we don't know the true prevalence. We estimated yeah. around 1,000. There's other reasons for having higher requirements and lower ability to deliver doses we can talk about but that is the basic premise of the framework for awareness yeah yeah it's um 
kind of scary to think that it can happen to you like ha- have you seen it happen yourself like or is it have you had very unusual occurrences on the surgery table yeah i had one um uh, on purpose because i had a patient who couldn't tolerate the anesthesia in a particular way so i had a whole discussion and we could we could talk all about this about uh, why you can't deliver anesthesia to yeah. patients, but suffice to say, if the heart, remember the heart has nerves in it, and some hearts are diseased and can't handle anesthesia as well as maybe your heart, my heart, et cetera, and we can't give a full dose of anesthesia. So in this particular case, I used an anesthesia technique that had a relatively high chance of them remembering some things. We talked about it before. They woke up with some weird like, oh, something happened to me. I don't know what happened, but something was going on. But they weren't traumatized by it. And that's because, this is one of the fascinating things about trauma and PTSD. The more patients are fearing for their life, the more patients feel they don't have control, the more danger they perceive. In a moment of trauma, the more likely that experience is to progress to PTSD rather than just an uncomfortable experience or a painful experience. We all have experiences, right? But we don't all develop PTSD. It's only a a sub-segment of the population. And that's why I personally, um, maybe you saw from the, uh, my blog or my videos where I called the patients the night before to begin a therapeutic mm-hmm. alliance there where if something unexpected happens, they know that someone is caring for them and they, they have at least something more than 30 seconds or 120 seconds of interaction with that person before falling asleep. They know mm-hmm. that they're loved, cared for, and guided in those moments so that even if something is aware and usually it's going to be here because we believe the auditory parts of the brain, the parts responsible for auditory processing, are most resistant to anesthesia. Meaning that if you're awake, many patients will recall hearing things. Well, I want them to hear that they're, like I said, loved, cared for, that they're the most important person to me in the whole world for the duration of their surgery. So if a little inkling of memory does break its way through, they're not fearing for their life, hopefully, as much because they know who's there watching over them and taking care of them. Yeah, yeah. No, the, the reason I do ask you about the awareness um, and the wakefulness is because we covered it on the podcast before. It was a paper um, where they called the effect of therapeutic suggestions during general anesthesia on post-operative pain and opioid use. And it was a a randomized controlled trial with the study concluding therapeutic suggestions paid through the earphones during general anesthesia could provide a safe, feasible, inexpensive, and non-drug technique to reduce post-operative pain and opioid use. Uh, Like, what do you think of this? Are you seeing much movement on this in the field? Dr. Strange was the, uh, was that when it titled that edition of the journal? That was the multi-site. Oh, yeah, it was, yeah. It was, yeah. Multi-center randomized clinical trial, our highest level of evidence mm. in the medical world is finally embracing something that many people call woo-hoo or hippy-dippy <laughs> or some sort of out there yeah. approach. There is not as much traction as it should have or as it could have. There is some. I practice in San Francisco, California. There's a little bit more of a, I'm not being political here, but a little bit more of acceptance of some of these ideas. And it is um, practice to some extent. However, I feel I'm still in the vast, vast minority of actually doing these things yeah. with patients. And like the paper said, what, well, that not that paper, but previous papers, I quote one, 
what other interventions do we have that are so cost-effective yeah. and devoid of side effects as therapeutic suggestion? Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, it's, it's true. It's interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's really powerful. But now I would like to move the integrative medicine part of, uh, of your whole, I suppose, career and the whole uh, person who you are. I think this was that what made me very interested about, you know, the, the body's ability to heal itself, this innate ability. How does this happen? What, what, do, what do we have to do correctly to kind of engage this power that is within us? And like, is there any way that can be explained? Wow. Well, this is one of the, once again, the mysteries of medicine that anesthesia sheds some light onto. Okay. One framework is to look at healing as something the body inherently does on its own. We call it the homeostatic model. The body has insults from the external world and mm -hmm. it responds in ways to help recover from those insults. You know, you get a scratch on your skin, your body automatically will heal. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now, once again, this goes into the realm of people at first thought this was more hippy dippy and out there, but we have a control to an extent, what we call top down, meaning from the brain moving down the spinal cord, where we can influence the autonomic or the, if you will, involuntary parts of our body. Examples. Mm -hmm. What are some concrete examples of this? The three biggest ones are skin conditions, bronchial hyperreactivity, aka asthma, and gut function. All three of these organs are richly innervated, right? And all three of them can be heavily influenced by our mindset. Examples, look at psoriasis, look at various rashes, look at acne. These all have some degree. We still don't understand why or how, but there is reproducibly across studies, some elements mm -hmm. of top-down control. If nothing else, ask yourself if you've had an itch before, the more you scratch it because you're more anxious, the worse it's going to get. Think of cold sores or aphthous ulcers. How many people do you know who have had traumatic events in life, have been very stressed, and they have an outbreak of a sore on their mouth, yeah. right? In that case, the virus is taking advantage of a presumably weakened immune system, boom, you get a cold sore or canker sores, right? These are all examples of the skin reacting. In asthma, it is. it was shown, I believe it was in the 60s, out of my previous hospital at Harvard, Brigham and Women Hospital, how with placebo, you can induce and treat asthma attacks in children. Oh, wow. Very fascinating stuff yeah. that would be difficult to do today because, you know, it's borderline unethical hmm. <laughs> to do this and then lastly, if you look at the gut, there's no question at all, um, if you look at irritable bowel syndrome, for example, how powerful the mind's effects are. Remember, there's more neurons, or about the same number of neurons throughout the gut as there are in the brain. Mere anxiety and stress alone can paralyze gut mobility. This is why patients who come into the emergency room after car accidents, we have to treat our anesthesia, we have to modify because we know that any traumatic event in the body literally paralyzes the gut. And we need to account for all these things when they're mm. under anesthesia. Um, anyways, you don't have to have a, had a car accident. That's an acute stressor. But if you have chronic stressors over time, people with chronic uh, stress or general anxiety disorder, these things affect the gut. Now, 
what is the point of saying the negative? So that the negatives are proof of concept that the mindset can exert this control. So when we're talking about how you get into the healing potential, the way that I view it in the vulnerable moments of anesthesia is what barriers have patients put up, not that it's their fault, what barriers have they set to their inner normal healing from being able to come out? Examples. When we give anesthesia, there's different depths of anesthesia depending on the doses that we use. When patients are in the lightest stage of, any, of anesthesia, it's kind of like you've had you've been buzzed from alcohol, mm-hmm. meaning that they are what we call disinhibited. That parts of the frontal cortex that ordinarily prevent you from saying or doing things are kind of turned off. It allows something new to come out, and this is the vulnerable moment where patients can have insights because they've brought down the barriers that that. Uh, Theoretically here, they put up yeah. over years of conditioning mm-hmm. that have prevented or stalled their inner healing from coming out. Um, I mean, I, I can give you so many anecdotes of what patients have said, but you get the idea. Anesthesia yeah. allows a window for us to put aside so many of the cognitive rigidities that our brain loops through by virtue of literally activating the aborreceptors and turning off those inhibitions. So is is that where the psychedelic therapy overlaps with the anesthesia? Is this this that moment when the anesthesia is breaking down these barriers uh, around the patient? Is it consciousness? Would that be the right word to use it? Or (laughs) limitations? Well, you're you're getting into the very interesting part now for Mm -hmm. like psychedelics and psilocybin, et cetera. They have different mechanisms of action than our anesthetics, fundamentally different. Likely some overlap, but they're not, um, they don't cause in and of themselves pain relief. They don't render unconsciousness the same way that our anesthetics do, at least not at the doses used for psychedelic effects. But they do. But your point is well taken that it is likely because of us being able to break through from these rigid cycles. The classic example is OCD. An obsession is a thought that enters a patient's mind that can only be relieved by a compulsion. So they have this obsession that their hands are dirty. They are compulsed to wash their hands and the cycle continues and continues. The only way they can relieve that obsession is with their compulsion. It's literally a feedback loop. This is the archetype of cognitive rigidity. When we go into these states of anesthesia where consciousness, we're still conscious, We're not necessarily unconscious, depending on the medication we use. If I give the medication that erases the memories, then they're not going to, or they're less likely to remember it, which is why sometimes I purposely, after discussing with the patient, withhold the memory wiping medication to be able to let them explore what's going on. Because we can break that cognitive rigidity yeah. for at least a little bit of time before they're fully unconscious. That's one of the that's one of the examples of a therapeutic potential mm. in the right circumstances. Yeah. So, how this uh, therapeutic potential is is this is that something that is again now being done, or is this is that something that you kind of ex- well not experiment, but is this just something that you you are involved in? Because 
uh, I'm like I'm really fascinated by the trend now that I noticed that loads of these drugs that have been demonized for whatever right or wrong reasons are now kind of circling back and there is seen a real potential in in this sphere of the psychedelic therapy you know sure. with the uh, the things that you have mentioned the PT the PTSD in some patients the depressions there's like loads of studies uh, going on right right now in in trying to bring to trying to research that so I just I just wonder like where's the psychedelic therapy under anesthesia fits in in the in the bigger in the bigger picture and w where do you see it going what can be achieved with it for the benefit of the patient? So fantastic fantastic question. Personally, I do not endorse psychedelics for recreational use. Yeah, let's just put it be out there. For the record, yeah. Because there are still many harms. Any of these medications that I'm talking about affect the central nervous system in ways that some of them would know anesthetic agents we've studied for decades we are very comfortable and we have the knowledge of their immediate effects their side effects and their long-term effects not so for street drugs yeah partly because street drugs have no guarantee of potency of purity they're not giving you a standard <laughs> you yeah. know of what it is who knows right with what we see with marijuana here laced with fentanyl potentially if it's coming from off the streets who knows what's yeah. in it issue one was potency purity there's no this this can be dangerous and we just see it in the emergency rooms here people coming in thinking they're taking substance a but it's really substance a plus b plus c plus d what's going on issue number two is that we don't know enough about long-term side effects and i hear anecdotally all the time that yes humans have co-evolved with mushrooms etc cetera, etc cetera. and i'm not saying that's wrong I'm not saying that people should, that there may not be a strong, powerful role for this in the future. I, however, always advocate for the side of what we call a precautionary principle, right? I understand that this is contrary to some of my colleagues. They think we should be doing these things because depression, anxiety, et cetera, can be so debilitating. I get it. Until studies come out showing the right doses, the right um, uh, protocols for things like psilocybin, for example, I take the view of, I know how to use anesthesia. I do it every day, multiple times a day. I know the side effects. I know the efficacy. I like to use things that we know and are, we have a good track record for. Ketamine is the best example. Maybe you've heard of ketamine. Yeah. It's been around for decades and decades. It is one of our anesthetic agents and it can absolutely help foster one of these experiences to help patients break cognitive rigidity loops that underlie not just OCD, but also other addictions, anxiety, depression, et cetera. Likely, there will be a great role for other psychedelics used appropriately, judiciously, and responsibly. However, yeah. I am not going to endorse opening the floodgates for public use simply because we've seen what's happened with marijuana, which is, I think, very, very harmful as a net effect for many of the patients that I take care of. I'm not saying there's not a rule for marijuana, but not the way it's been aggressively marketed and taken advantage of by such a large industry here in California that I see the active effects of my patients. I just had one yesterday. Mm. Under anesthesia, it's very clear what, the, what a uh, daily cannabis user's brain is like. These are not subtle features whatsoever. And it's fun, far more than just the brain. It's far more than increased anesthesia requirements that increases, <clears throat> that increases the risk of anesthesia awareness. 
Yeah. Marijuana affects the whole body. Yeah. And as you know, THC concentrations are through the roof now. 30% you can easily obtain online compared to the original type that was maybe 1%, 2%, 3% THC. I'm not saying that there's no rule for these things. There is a rule. Absolutely. We have a couple of them well-defined. But when it becomes legalized, you have a whole industry and marketing force behind it. I would hate to see the same thing happen for mushrooms. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, um, I had... Uh... Well, first, I have two anecdotes I want to share with you. First one is uh, me and Evan, we, we just came back uh, sh maybe short of two weeks. We were in New York. And I think I think New York, the state, they must have legalized cannabis recently. Uh, we were walking down the street and the amount of like bosses driving around trying to sell you stuff, uh, just, the, just the smell of cannabis just holding on the streets is like, it was really aggressive. So I, co I, I would imagine it's even a level higher in california and this is saying from the guy living in the netherlands so. <laughs> <laughs> right i know i know and uh, and the other thing that i wanted to say is um i actually i had a conversation and that was a, that was a while ago now i was uh and i was being the skeptical guy about actually the the the, the magical use of cannabis because the other person i was talking to she was saying like how amazing how amazing cannabis is and how it can be used for everything and she was throwing at me this thing saying they used cannabis or thc to kill uh, cancer cells in a petri dish and i'm just thinking to myself look you can you can throw anything at the <laughs> cells in the petri dish and it will kill them like just just because they use cannabis like it doesn't really it doesn't really translate how does this translate into a human body how this can be used so i completely agree with you that there is this aggressive hype around all of these drugs they try to marketize marketize them as these uh, you know uh, bullet for one bullet for all kind of thing but like it's just neat, requires research right it requires like an evidence-based research before we can like you know subjugate people patients to to their effect like we really have to know uh what are the consequences the side effects long long and and short and yeah so yeah i'm with you on this one i just want to emphasize that i'm uh, i'm really with you on, on this on this side but um, i'm gonna i'm gonna hand over to uh to evan now because uh, i know he has a couple of uh, pressing questions about uh, ketamine and what's not you so. don't have anything else you want to add about that did you no uh, no i just wanted to share my anecdotes <laughs> uh, no no uh yeah no because you have mentioned ketamine and it was something else i had talked about on the podcast um so you do use ketamine as an and as a anesthesiac in your uh, surgeries is that true absolutely yeah yeah and um because yeah ketamine now is being put forward as a therapy for mental health issues do you see any crossover between patients who have been administered ketamine in surgery or maybe who use ketamine and improve mental health or reduce ptsd outcomes i do not follow as of the status quo i don't follow patients long enough yeah i, I go based off of the evidence that others have studied for long term i will say in the short term i've seen incredible things not just with ketamine Ketamine is very powerful, but anything that can render us into it's, it takes the way that I explain it to patients is that there's three things at play. <laughs> and I think I really embrace this framework and you'll see what the ketamine is not even a necessary part. Um, the first is that there has to be some sort of wake up call. The second is that there has to be trust. And the third is that there has to be some form of a stimulant. What do I mean? 
a wake-up event. When we're talking about surgery, when somebody has a diagnosis of cancer, heaven forbid, or they have maybe a broken bone or whatever it is, there's some wake-up call that, oh my gosh, my body is not invincible. <laughs> I need surgery. I need to have my body cut open to have something fixed. That prompts a huge awakening for many, many patients. And I can give you the hard evidence for the, up, up until now, there's been some very, very powerful, powerful evidence for how that alone can be very uh, transformative for patients' health. But number one is the wake-up call. Surgery is a natural one. Two is the trust. The natural thing when you're under surgery is trust in your guide. You're literally your anesthesiologist who is guiding you through the levels of anesthesia to put you into that medical coma and then have you safely progress to surgery and wake you up again. The third is what I call the stimulant. And you can call it anything you want, but something that stimulates you, that catalyzes some growth within you. Naturally, when you're having surgery, anesthesia is a chemical catalyst that can help, like we said, soften your inhibitions, break cognitive rigidities, et cetera, et cetera. By no means is this only limited to surgery. You can go through these with any number of permutations you want. A wake-up call can be the death of a loved one, can be being fired from work, can be whatever. Trust can be, and your doctor is an easy one. Some people have some strong faith in religion or spirituality or a leader of some sort. A catalyst can be, once again, some sort of spiritual path that you believe in can be any number of things. They don't need to be exogenous. I never push uh, <laughs> drugs on people, yeah. no, because I, I personally believe in doing things without medications and other, without exogenous uh, supplements first. However, you have some patients that are so depressed, suicidal, so anxious that you do a risk-benefit. And those are patients who are very good candidates for very safe psychedelic or, you know, medication assisted psychotherapy. Anyway, surgery helps bring all these, these, all these three together. Ketamine is but one form of a chemical catalyst, by no means the only. So I see immediate changes in patients afterwards. Examples, I had a patient last week who had a very, very um, confusing diagnosis. It was rigidity in a limb. And uh, they've been seeing specialists all around the Bay Area. You know, there's many academic centers around here. Nobody's gotten to the bottom of it. She woke up and said, Doc, I think I have conversion disorder. I can't go. I don't have enough time to go into the whole story. But yeah. I strongly suspected that what she was describing was a conversion disorder. And she wasn't even conscious yet. Because when I called her days later, she didn't remember this conversation she wow. had with me. And it's like, what happened in this brain? To share this, I strongly believe that, believe that was the case because it, often it's why you see so many yeah. different doctors, they can't figure it out. Are you familiar with conversion disorder? No. <laughs> I was, oh, that was well, my next question was, can you tell me what it is? Conversion disorder is one of the most confusing, mysterious diagnoses. Literally, it's when your brain is controlling a part of your body in a way that you, one, cannot control it, and two, aren't even like fully aware of what's going on in the sense that like the common example is somebody comes in with saying that doc, my arm doesn't move anymore. And it's like, Oh my gosh, did you have a stroke? Do you have a spinal cord injury? Do you have multiple sclerosis? What's going on? You do all the tests. Everything organically is normal. Nothing is suggestive of an infection or like we said, a stroke or something like all of a sudden one day, this is just floppy. We have a bunch of, um, uh, provocative tests 
Mm-hmm. And we do to make sure the patients aren't faking it for some sort of secondary gain. We do these tests and a large number of patients, it's like, well, like you literally will hold their arm above their head. Mm-hmm. And if you let go of it, if they're faking it, they'll move their hand to the side. So it doesn't hit them in the forehead. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But if it's someone who literally really cannot control their arm, it'll slap, it'll, I mean, it's not the nicest thing to do. I don't do this with patients. Yeah. I try to have something to prevent them from hurting themselves, yeah. but you get the idea. There's tests we do help rule out a malingering kind of reason here. So now you're left to people that we have no explanation for a completely random weird disorder. In many of these patients, there is some antecedent or like preceding traumatic event, something that has happened to them where their brain's literally responding by just shutting off part of their body. Wow. That's amazing. I mean, I mean that, very real. Yeah. Uh, and is does does this event does this happen just after obviously not just after surgery it's something can can this like happen to me tomorrow for no reason at all we don't believe it happens to people without some triggering sure. event the brain is not likely to do this on its own this particular patient when it happened to them years ago it was after a horrible experience they were telling me about I mean I felt terrible hearing about all of it and then this happened shortly after the reason I mentioned this it wasn't caused by the surgery. Mm. The patient had already thought about this before, but patients don't like to be told they have conversion disorder because there's a stigma in our medical community that it's quote all in your head. And patients think they're being dismissed or that they're, uh, you know, being told they're crazy. This isn't true. We're not, yes, it is all in your head, but it doesn't mean that you're crazy or that you're wrong. It just means that, you know, the brain has incredible top down influence over our body. Conversion disorder being just one of the very powerful examples of it. The point is that patients don't like to be told this. So going back to my patient who had just woke up, by the way, very, very coherent from anesthesia, but not fully, not with all pistons firing yet. So they're not remembering everything. For a patient to say they have conversion disorder, I've never seen before. Because usually they don't ever want to be told they have conversion disorder. Yeah. But when you just when you bring down barriers enough, you let people be honest with themselves. And it's like, wow, you know, shoot, this really might be what like can I have read it might be, even though we're uncomfortable addressing it. Yeah. When you can at least get some patient acceptance, when we ourselves can accept things about ourselves, it's the first step to healing, yeah. the beginning that healing potential letting it come out. And that's what I believe the anesthesia did. She wasn't even awake for it fully. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really because that this is the last thing I want to ask about the the psychedelics. It's just like because ketamine, I like we kind of looked at it. it's such a weird one to me because it doesn't really stimulate the dopamine part of your brain. And to me, it just seems like you're immobile. It renders you like, yeah, you can't really do much. And yet it still seems to have benefits. So that's just the part I find really fascinating about ketamine. There's obviously some other part of your brain that's being activated to give this uh, like awareness. So I just that's why I wanted to ask um, about specifically that drug. And I just thought it was it's a very weird one. Do you know anything more about ketamine? Ketamine is classically a very dirty drug because it does not act on only one receptor. Yeah. The NMDA receptor agonism is one of its most more profound effects, but we call it dirty because it just hits so many receptors that we haven't fully characterized yet. Whether something affects dopamine or serotonin preferentially or oxytocin or whatever, it doesn't, the end of the day, being pragmatic from the engineering approach, when we see in a randomized study that there's evidence yeah. the side effects are low, 
it's like, let's have some biological plausibility. And I like to move on. I don't like to get too bent up. As long as we have some plausibility and safety, you know, now we can talk about really making an impact in patients' lives who've been suffering for maybe decades without help. Yeah, yeah. No, that's uh, definitely to have it grounded in science is definitely the right way to go about it. Um, Yeah, so the next part, just the final part we're going into, then just the opioids and pain relief and the the opioid crisis, I suppose, in America. Um, For many people in the US, after they have surgery, they are prescribed opioids for pain relief. As you mentioned on your blog, it only takes five days of opioid medication use after surgery to put you at risk for addiction. What is some advice that you can give to patients to prevent this, them becoming addicted to pain relief medicine? Yeah. So that statistic was in a a white paper from a couple of years ago now, but, uh, we use it as just like a general number where it doesn't take very long. They begin flipping switches in the brain yeah. that have long-term consequences, right? And I'm so happy you brought that up because uh, it doesn't take very much time to begin flipping switches in the brain that can have long-term consequences. It's not about withholding pain medications. It's about using them correctly and about not using the wrong medication for the wrong purpose, right? Pain is 100% in the brain. I'm going to be very clear about this. It is completely not controversial. And I'll give you four examples. For, I mean, <laughs> if, you want to go in, if you want to make a logical argument here, you'll appreciate this. Pain is 100% of the brain. You do not need tissue destruction. It is neither necessary nor sufficient for pain. Yeah. Many people can have all sorts of injuries and not feel pain. People can feel pain without injuries. And <laughs> you can modulate somebody's pain perception with placebo, meaning that it's once again, top down a hundred percent tissue destruction is not anywhere is not needed. I don't, I think I said four, I gave you three, the, um, there's one more in there, but you get the point. Tissue destruction is maybe there's some loose correlation, but opioids act at very specific receptors in the spinal cord and parts of the brain to help minimize signals that reach the brain. So that's like a bottom-up type of pain relief. Very powerful, very necessary for many parts of surgery and in some patients with pain for other reasons, broken bones, cancer, etc. However, we're doing the wrong thing if we give one medication for something that has many different things that feed into yeah, it. Yeah. Especially when that one medication has so many side effects. Now, this effect that it's in the brain gives you the biological plausibility for why is there so much efficacy for things like placebo, for clinical hypnosis, for cognitive behavioral therapy, and all sorts of other purely psychological interventions. Uh, and also... We have to remember that there's other receptors as well that we can uh, agonize and antagonize, hence the role for things like paracetamol or Tylenol, um, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, et cetera. There's so many medications, so many mind-body techniques, because if you want to address pain, you got to address all parts of it. And you want to use the lowest dose po- uh, possible to help minimize side effects. In the United States, for many reasons, partly for... Um, <laughs> As I'm sure you're aware, Purdue Pharmaceuticals yeah. having a giant launchpad on their hands, right? Um, there was a lot of indoctrination that pain is unacceptable. Well, this builds, once again, cognitive rigidity. How many times has a patient told me, Doc, I will be able to get back to my life if my pain gets down to a three? 
Well, my friend, you've just you've just said you prophesized your future for yourself. Once again, cognitive rigidity. Inflexibility is the source of so much of our inability to heal ourselves. You, you see the pattern, right? Mm-hmm, definitely. <laughs> no, no. So no, now no. we have. <laughs> Go ahead. No, no. I was just yeah. I uh, I now like the dots are being connected in my in my head as well. Uh, just uh, just uh, just as you were you you were speaking, you know, like if the patients already set up some sort of threshold that they have to get below then like yeah that's that's it that's set in stone like what and they're not willing to do anything else about it is is that more or less correct they don't want to like go the extra yeah 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 you you are setting yeah exactly you are setting up your future for you so it's like it's a difference between i mean imagine the ocean right the ocean's a big place waves are very strong you cannot fight the waves but you can learn to ride them or surf them or whatever You And this is what life is, right? Invariably, life, whether you're in the operating room, you're in the hospital, or your dad just died, or you got fired from work, whatever it is, the more flexibility we have to be able to <laughs> cope with healthy coping mechanisms to ultimately be resilient, well, the less chance we have of falling into rigid cycles that are the breeding ground for traumas, addictions, anxiety, depression, and all these things. Oh, and by the way, chronic pain, as we just talked about, that end up costing us billions of dollars lead to more days of lost, of not showing up to work, lost productivity than anything else. And unfortunately, this has been fed into it. It's just not even a conspiracy because it's very, very well documented. When patients are told you shouldn't have pain, when patients tell me, doc, I don't want to feel any pain, after surgery i mean i'm sorry you are going to have some level of discomfort yeah. because you are having a traumatic experience but when patients live in a culture that promotes a pain-free existence mm. that is you are embedding it you're conditioning the brain to a very rigid expectation of inflexibility hence why opioids were fantastic tools to address such a rigid population So you, you influence the patients, you influence the doctors who are now being rated based on their patient satisfaction. You see how it's a perfect setup for an opioid epidemic. Yeah, We yeah. prescribe, it's like 10X. And I, I cited in one of my blog articles, I cited the paper where they actually compared international uh, levels of post-operative opioid prescriptions, literally 10X plus differences in the US versus other countries. Yeah. You know, Anthony, when you have to uh, put as someone who is either addicted to like the street heroin or um, or is addicted to the pain opioids based painkillers, does their addiction make your work harder? Does their body respond differently physiologically to uh, to the anesthesia, or do they not make your work harder? <laughs> oh, 100%. So we need to account for this, otherwise. We risk having a delta in the anesthesia requirement and the anesthesia delivery. And then that's where you get anesthesia awareness or intraoperative yeah. awareness. Opioids, any type of street drug, really, alcohol, marijuana, to a significant extent, all increase the dose requirements, which is why, by the way, just um, so people understand, I'm not saying there's no role for marijuana, but the fact that marijuana use can double dosage requirements in and of itself shows that there is some effect in the central nervous system. 
from yeah. habitual marijuana use. And we don't know what it is, but that is a terrifying objective and quantitative uh, change in people's brains that we see, not to mention increased uh, changes in their heart and lungs, which we can talk about if you want, but just from the brain alone. Yeah. When we're talking about THC concentrations that are by no means natural, nowhere found in the natural world, right? That are purposely being made. And then, and you're giving them to younger and younger kids with aggressive advertising, 2X the requirements for propofol. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that's just for marijuana. Opioids, the same thing. Alcohol, red hair. There's a very interesting correlation with red hair and increased anesthesia yeah. requirements. Very modest, but it's still there. Increased anxiety before surgery increase in anesthesia requirements modestly as well. Mm. So there's many things that can increase your dose requirements, which we need to account for. Otherwise that patient is at risk for intraoperative awareness. Yeah. The, the redhead is really relevant for our Irish, Irish uh, audience. You know, yeah. there's a couple of them. <laughs> Listen right the now. <laughs> um, can I, uh, uh, I just want to follow up on this um, crisis. And I, uh, it's, it's, it's going to be a big question, but maybe you, you have some thoughts that you want to share. I was just wondering, is there any, was there any inherent flaw in the, in the medical system that allowed for this crisis to take place in the to take place? Yeah. Yeah. There were many flaws, I would say in the society, societal level. Right. Um, and I can't comment on all of them, sure. but I will say that having very aggressive, you know, only in the United States and New Zealand can you have direct-to-consumer advertising. There's a very, very yeah. loose connection, <laughs> or sorry, loosely regulated relationship between drug makers and patients. And physicians fall in there somewhere. So I'm not saying that drug companies are bad. They're incredibly necessary. They produce fantastic medications that have made the emergency room, the operating room, some forms of cancer, some forms of autoimmune disease, et cetera, like treatable conditions which for all of history has never been a possibility so they are amazing and let's not for one second jump on the wrong you know you got to be not, not a pendulum right unfortunately society and medicine follow a pendulum mm. so 10 years ago the pendulum was oh my gosh we have to treat pain with in every way possible because patients will give us bad re report cards the drug companies are you know pushing it very very hard uh <laughs> etc talking about breakdowns at some of them but now we're swinging in a direction where it's almost like we're afraid to give opioids. And it's like, well, no, there's a very specific role for them in the right place. But unfortunately, when you have these swings, psychedelics right now, I think are swinging towards like, oh my gosh, we have to make them like legal yeah, for everybody. Exactly. And it's yeah. like, well, we're going to have a similar issue here. Marijuana is very much right now aggressively advertising to people indiscriminate of age, I feel. Yeah. It's not, you know, so we cannot be susceptible the medical system is susceptible to this pendulum and it hurts patients for everything yeah and so, you know i was I, I also think that you know uh like yourself with your with your medical background and uh, kind of medical awareness perhaps uh, to some degree myself and evan you know still kind of being within the academic world we we sort of have this kind of rational thinking and kind of looking at the bigger picture and and trying trying to be careful about the decisions we make but like you know if you advertise something to the lay person on the street very aggressively as you as you said like there is not this there's so little that they that they can do 
other than like you know just sitting down and actually reading papers or or, or watching stuff educational and not everyone has either time or or even you know willingness to to do to do such a thing so it just seems like they are just kind of just praise waiting to be you know attacked by this advertisement and they fall into the the vicious circle yeah and i do think oh go ahead ahead. yeah no i just and i the other thing i wanted to say which i thought was really interesting how you how in society in the u.s where pain medication was people expected to have no pain and i think not many people uh examine that in the opioid crisis i think a lot of people go oh it's all the the pharma companies and the drug the doctors and all this whereas i think it wasn't really no it wasn't something that people commented on it was like patients went in like i don't want pain so i think um publicizing that we should have to learn to deal tolerate and be flexible as you said i think it's something that something people should take away definitely from your videos and from this podcast anyways i i think that's what i wanted to say self so one of the greatest uh you know parts of medicine that we don't talk about is the power of our innate healing potential yeah. but it only comes up when we take agency and responsibility for ourselves and you hit that on and it's not and unfortunately a lot of my patients are, especially on social media, people think that I'm saying that, oh, you're blaming the patients. But I hope that you guys appreciate it's not about blaming. It's no. about empowering, recognizing the potential that we have. Um, I had to comment on the direct-to-consumer advertising because it, one very uh, powerful example that I'm very sensitive to is genetic testing. Uh, and if you want to talk about numbers and how little recognition the public has, in addition to doctors that receive this information, look no further than what is the meaning of various genetic tests, like the breast cancer one, the BRCA1 mutation. You have a population that sees Angelina Jolie getting a double mastectomy for her personal reasons. That's fine. She was positive for BRCA. That's, you know, terrible, terrible potential consequences of breast cancer. But most patients don't know that the positive predictive value roughly for having a positive bracket test is like between 50 and 60%. Meaning that having the bracket gene mutation is almost like a coin flip about developing breast cancer later on or not. Now, coin flip is still obviously very high, but it's not 80%, it's not 85, not 90%. It's not a death sentence. Almost half of women don't develop cancer. And instead of looking at it from the angle of why don't half of women develop breast cancer, we look at it that, oh my gosh, we have to test ourselves so we know what to do. And doctors don't know how to interpret these tests, but when you're advertising them straight to patients, how are the patients supposed to interpret exactly. it? Without, with that you're preying on the vulnerable. These things are not free, they cost money, and they have very questionable benefit for the layperson. Of course, there's some populations that have higher risk. Ashkenazi Jews have a higher rate of BRCA mutations. So this is not blanket advice by any means, but it's being advertised with a blanket. And that is not right for patients. What realistic measures then could be introduced to try and bring down post-operative pain treatment um, do you suggest? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so this is one of the big questions I get. Um, the best answer, it's not pragmatic, is that it does come down to the individual. Somebody with a history of PTSD is probably going to have a different optimal pain path, a pain um, pain solution 
than our pain prescription, if you will, than somebody who's coming in very depressed or somebody who's coming in with cancer surgery or coming, somebody who's coming in with a hip replacement. Yeah. There's so many factors that go in because once again, pain is 100% of the brain. Having a blanket approach is helpful, but it inevitably leads to opioids being used heavily because we're not necessarily addressing the underlying reasons of somebody having pain. Like we said, tissue destruction is neither necessary nor sufficient for pain. So this is why having what we call a multimodal approach that addresses one's goals after surgery, because I'll guarantee you, if your goal from shoulder surgery is so that you can lift up your grandchild again, having that be consistently repeated in your mind and reinforced will help you lift up your grandchild sooner than if you're focusing on, oh my gosh, if my shoulder feels better, if I get to that four out of 10 pain, then I'll be able to do X, Y, and Z. Having the goal-based approach is very powerful, but it depends. If you're having cancer surgery, that's not going to be the same goal yeah. than if you're having your appendix taken out, right? So there is some level of individuality, but we owe it to our patients to help prepare them and prime them for that type of optimal outcome. Yeah. Anthony, I am, I'm going to come out and say that soon enough, I'm going to have my own surgery. So I'm just listening to everything that you're talking. Uh, I'm listening because I'm, I'm going to have a jaw surgery. I'm going to have implants put in, in my jaw. So, uh, do you maybe have some, what are your favorite ways, uh, you know, to keep healthy body and mind on a daily basis that I can do kind of in preparation for the, for the procedure. So, you know, coming into the procedure, I'll be low on anxiety and after the procedure, my, my recovery will be somehow improved. Oh my gosh. Well, I, I certainly wish you the best for your surgery and, and jaw surgery is not an easy one. It takes a long time and it's just difficult to eat, to speak, to swallow, to drink. It's not easy. All right. So yeah. I hope that, <laughs> that all your viewers are also sending you positive energy here. Cause you know that that's <laughs> thank you. I hope so. About your question, there's typically a three, three foundational pillars, if you will, they involve the mindset, physical activity or conditioning and nutrition. These are important for leading up to and then in your post-operative part mm -hmm. as well. The mindset we've touched on a lot already mm -hmm. because the most reductionist way to view it is that the higher the anxiety, the higher the cognitive inflexibility prior to surgery, increases anesthesia requirements, increases the risk of side effects like nausea, worse pain, increases the chances of certain complications, blood clots, et cetera. Obviously, there's a surgery by surgery specific risk, but um, in general, when we average things out, the signals point to more flexibility and um, being at peace and having a clear goal in mind for what you want. So I don't know if your jaw surgery, whether it's for maybe sleep apnea, I don't know what it's for. It's just, I'm going to have implants put in, so they need to screw in, uh, they need to screw into my jaw to put in the, the screws for the implants. Is this for a tooth or for Yeah, for tooth. Else? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Oh, for a tooth. Sorry, I thought you were going to have a jaw surgery. So that, that won't be necessarily, hopefully it won't be as, some people that have to have like jaw implants placed to move their jaw forward or backwards or whatever. Oh, hope, no, like, sorry. Accident. I probably didn't explain properly. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's okay. It's okay. Those people have to have their mouth shut for like, you know, weeks at a mm. time. Those are challenging. Yours is challenging too, but hopefully will not be as much yeah. of an issue. But having, you know, what, what's the goal? And by the way, the best example for why I bring this up is that when you look at pregnant women who are giving birth, they often get 
zero IV anesthesia. Zero IV anesthesia. They get a spinal, so they're paralyzed and numb mm-hmm. from the nipples and down, and that's it. If I'm doing hip surgery on somebody or I'm doing the anesthesia for a hip surgery, I might give them the same spinal, numb from the nipples down, but I'll also have them be really, really sleepy because they are nervous and anxious for a number of reasons. What's the difference between these two? There are many, but one reason is that that woman has had nine months to prepare for having a child. Yeah. They have a goal. That- have intention for what they want. How powerful is it to have that intention that they don't need as much pain medication? They are, they don't want more. <laughs> this is not every woman, obviously, right? But this is something that we consistently practice. By the way, one reason why is because we don't want to give IV medications to the mom because those will reach, they cross the placental barrier, they cross the fetus's blood brain barrier. Nobody wants to have a high child, yeah. you know, no, who's built no, up on morphine or something when they're born, they can have consequences as well. So for safety reasons, we also don't want to snow or to overdose the mom or anything, right? But it's like, that's how powerful our intention is. Now, you don't want to be inflexible over it, but having what the goal is of the surgery. For physical fitness, surprisingly, um, there isn't actually a lot of evidence that's still emerging, but the better conditioned your heart is, the more anesthesia you can tolerate. Okay. The more anesthesia you can tolerate, the less the chance of a mismatch of requirement and dosing, less chance of being awake. And then lastly is the nutrition. Um, and that's also still we're learning about, but bottom line is anyone who's having surgery, you need to have enough protein intake because you're doing active wound healing after surgery. And also say that sleep is very important because anesthesia, like we've opened up saying, anesthesia is not sleep. In fact, anesthesia disrupts REM sleep for even up to a couple days after. So anything that can help promote sleep restoration will likely help promote wound healing faster, will also help prevent anxiety, depression, et cetera, from either recurring or getting worse or even starting for the first time after surgery. Remember, your case of surgery is relatively minor, but a woman, for example, is having their uterus removed, yeah. they're losing a part of their body. There's a lot of emotion that goes into that surgery. And it's not by coincidence that depression can significantly worsen after surgery for any number of reasons, pain, loss of mobility, not going to work, monetary and financial concerns, in addition to the actual surgery itself. Yeah. Anything we can do to help prevent the body from going down a spiral, sleep is one of them. So anyway, supplement-wise, melatonin actually has uh, a lot of safety behind it. You always want to talk to your doctor first. Sure. But it's one that I uh, am relatively liberal recommending to the right patient. And then you have a couple other vitamins and minerals that promote wound healing, mm-hmm. zinc, vitamin K, magnesium, calcium, et cetera. But um, I hope that was like the very short answer no, to a very good no. question. <laughs> sure. That you Sorry for misleading you. <laughs> <laughs> You're in good hands now, Tom, so you don't have to worry. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I think we've covered everything um, what we wanted to cover in the po- podcast. Is there anything else you wanted to discuss? You have more power over your health than you've probably ever been told. And there's human potential is vast. So our topics of discussion are equally vast. Yeah. <laughs> we can follow up in a future podcast. Definitely. But uh, I think we've touched the touched on a lot of powerful concepts that we don't always hear about that when appreciated and integrated into our everyday life can help us heal in ways that we didn't know possible without the side effects, the costs, 
the other issues around conventional medicine, which is very powerful, like you said at the beginning, for emergency care. But there's so much that leads up before someone needs an emergency. If we can capitalize on our wound, on our personal uh, healing potential prior to then, boy, could we be living so much more wholesome and likely enjoying life a lot more. Yeah, indeed. Um, yeah. So again, thanks for joining us. Um, if people wanted to learn more about you and your work, maybe where could they go? How could they find you? Fantastic. Uh, at Medical Secrets is my handle on uh, TikTok, like you mentioned earlier, YouTube. And what's your TikTok again? Just your TikTok handle so that people can listen. Medical Secrets. Oh, it's Medical Secrets as well. Perfect. Yeah, Medical Secrets because it's the great, greatest secret in medicine is our ability to heal ourselves. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, that's uh, a great note to end on. Uh, again, thanks for joining us, Anthony. And uh, yeah, we wish you best of luck with the with the rest of your career and in and uh, everything else. Thank you for coming on podcast, Anthony. Uh, really enjoyed the conversation. And uh, yeah, you opened my eyes in certain areas that <laughs> I, I will look into. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you all for having me. That was today's episode uh, with Dr. Anthony Cave. I hope you enjoyed it. We covered his field of anesthesiology, the world of alternative medicine uh, and psychedelics in anesthesiology. And we also looked at opioids in the pain relief and in the opioid crisis. And uh, we will talk to you on the next one. Yeah, guys, stay skeptical and bye.